Let's open our Bibles to um, Isaiah chapter 65 and 66. Isaiah is um, right in the middle, and it's really the first of the major prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all, all of them are considered the major prophets. And then we get into the minor prophets. The reason they call Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah the major prophets is simply because they're larger books. And men's prayer were in Zephaniah. And it was just three chapters long. So it's called a minor prophet, not because it's any less significant, but only that it's smaller. This has 66 chapters. And uh, we, Lord willing, will be um, finishing up the book of Isaiah and heading on into, I think, a timely period with Jeremiah. So with that being said, not going to get too far before we have to do a sidetrack. In chapter 65, the first verse says, I was sought by those who did not ask for me, and I was found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. With that, I'd like to... um, Break down chapter 65 into three different sections. The Redeemer's reason for rejecting the nation is going to be found here. We're going to find that there's sort of a reservation made for a remnant, and that's referring to the Jews. And we'll also be introduced to a new heaven and a new earth at the latter part of chapter 65. But verse 1 is all by itself. It's actually quoted in the book of Romans So if you would turn to Romans chapter 10, picking it up in verse 16, Paul writing to the Romans, talking about Israel rejects the prophet. Jesus actually told a parable. The parable of the vineyard is actually about the Lord sending the prophets, especially Jeremiah. It talks about the things they suffered. Isaiah, we believe, was um, they cut him in half. Uh, That's how they killed him. But in verse 16, it says, But they have not all obeyed the gospel. And then he quotes Isaiah, For Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed our report? Now that takes us back to chapter 53 of Isaiah. Who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Okay, we're saved by faith through God's grace. But your faith can grow. We call it the elementary principles in Hebrews chapter 6, the ABCs. And it's what everybody learns when they first come around and they get saved. But then it talks about the meat of the word and the more in-depth teachings. And you really are only going to get that when you do a systematic study of the scriptures, going through the whole Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. So faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. But I say they have not heard. Yes, indeed. Their sound has gone out to the whole earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, did Israel not know? That's a question. First, Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation, and I will anger you by a foolish nation. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was manifest to those who did not ask for me. And he quotes, Isaiah chapter 65, verse 1. And the context of who he's referring to here is you and I. You might like to think that you were a seeker and you were looking for truth, and that's how you came to the Lord. The truth of the matter is there's none that really do seek after the Lord, but he goes after and seeks and pursues you. Amen? He's a pursuer. He's a God who's in love with his creation. For God so loved the world. He loves you that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him won't perish, but have everlasting life. I couldn't go anywhere in my BC days without running into Christians. They were everywhere, and they were always talking to me about the Lord. I remember in my hitchhiking days, somebody would pick me up, and I got to the point where I would just say, I'll just get it over with a witness to me, and we'll be done with it. And they'd say, how did you know I was a Christian? I just, I said, I just know. I'd get dropped off hitchhiking, and there would be, this is a true story, I'd look down, there's a gospel, a John track, just laying on the ground, getting dropped off in the middle of nowhere. And this would happen time and time and over and over again. And I knew the hound of heaven, like Billy Graham says, was hot on my tail. So he's a pursuer. And it just gets to that time when we eventually yield 
to the gospel, we decided, okay, I give up. I remember even the time after accepting the Lord that there wasn't that complete surrender. Because I knew that if I did that, it would involve talking to people. Because I knew what these people did because they were doing it to me. So if I became one of those people, I realized that I would actually have to share the gospel. And um, it took me back to uh, when I was in ninth grade running for student council. I had absolutely no qualifications for being vice president of student council, except I was in athletics and popular in that, and they vote according to popularity, not your qualifications. So, But in order to do this, you had to stand up in front of people and read why you should be the vice president of the student council when I was in ninth grade. Well, I got up on stage, and I had my paper. I'd never done this before. And all of a sudden, (laughs) and I got done with that, and I said, I will never, ever do that again, ever. So imagine my, my struggle, realizing that complete surrender meant sharing the gospel with people. It's terrifying, much less to stand up in front of people and do it. Well, I was hitchhiking back from Washington, D.C. on Highway 8 in Indiana, about 2 o'clock in the morning. I had gotten off 80 somehow, some way. And um, that's where I surrendered. I said, okay, I give up. If you want me to witness the people, then I'll do it. You got me, all of me, including the witnessing part, because <laughs> I don't want to do that. So I prayed that prayer, and all of a sudden, a pickup pulls up, and and here's some guy. He was pretty loaded, and I thought, well, here I go. And uh, I don't know if he heard a word I said, but what little bit I knew, I gave him everything in that period of time. I just unloaded Jesus on this guy, and he got me back on 80, and and that was one of my first encounters of giving up and um, serving the Lord the way I felt that I should. Well, I was not yet baptized in the Holy Spirit. And this is the reason for the struggle. I told the Lord, I cannot do this. And he told me, of course you can. And it was explained to me the necessity for discipleship, to have somebody take you under their wing, the absolute necessity of not only being baptized in water because Jesus says so, just because the Lord says so, that's why you do it. But then Jesus said, I want you guys to tarry in Jerusalem. Now remember that the disciples already had the Lord breathe on them in chapter 19 of the Gospel of John, the day of his resurrection. Receive the Holy Spirit. Question, did they receive the Holy Spirit? Yeah. But then he tells the same group of guys not to go anywhere but to wait in Jerusalem until they receive power. Same guys. So you, you when you get saved and you're born again, yes, the Holy Spirit does come in inhabit you. That's one thing. But then there's the baptism of the Spirit that the Lord says, I don't want you guys to go anywhere and do anything until you have that. So until I was baptized in the Holy Spirit, April of 1972, well, that made all the difference in the world. And it wasn't so much, it was no longer a fear. Now it was, I want to give away the best thing that I've ever found in this world. It's like when you're a teenager growing up and you hear that latest song and it's so stinking good you can't wait to turn your buddies onto it. You gotta hear this song. It's that good. And um, when you really meet the Lord, you just wanna give him away. Good place for an amen. When you just meet Jesus and he fills that empty spot inside, you said, too good to be true. I gotta pass this on. I gotta tell somebody. And so he pursued us. I got sidetracked, but I was found by those who did not seek me. That's because the Lord sought us. Here in the book of Romans, we have um, this Isaiah 65, verse 1, speaking directly to how the Lord Jesus Christ somehow sent somebody into your life, pursued you, somewhere along the line you surrendered to, just like I did. And um, then somewhere along the line, if, if you weren't baptized with the Holy Spirit when you received him, example, Cornelius. Here, Peter's giving a Bible study to Cornelius, and the Holy Spirit interrupts the Bible study, and they start speaking in tongues. And they haven't even been 
been baptized in water. Well, this totally blows the mind of the guys that were with Peter. This can't, what's happening here? God is saving Gentiles? Unbelievable. And then he says, well, why can't they be baptized in water, seeing that they're already baptized in the Holy Spirit? You can't put the Lord in a box. For me, it was two years with no power, a lot of fear, a lot of bargaining, because I thought it was on my shoulders. But when you're baptized in the Holy Spirit, completely different deal. Um, you can't shut me up, and that's just the way it is. So we'll probably be here till 10 or 11, you know. It's biblical, you know. Paul gave a Bible study all night. One guy f- fell out of a window, died, and Paul went and raised him from the dead. Everything was fine. All right, let's finish this up. Isaiah is very bold. Verse 20, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, now this is the Gentiles, all day long I have stretched out my hand to a disobedient and contrite people. So let's go back now to Isaiah 65. And and gang, one of the things that I want you to see, again, I've, I've repeated this a lot, but as we go through the scriptures, I want you to see the connection here. Here we have the very first verse of Isaiah 65 being quoted by Paul in Romans chapter 10. This verse is about you and it's about me. Now, um, verses 2 through 7, the thought changes not to the Gentiles, but to the, the Jews as a people. And we just read Romans 10, 21, and it's here it's quoted again. Please make the connection. Excuse me. I've reached out my hand all day to a, a long and rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, according to their own thoughts, a people who provoke me to anger continually to my face, who sacrifice in gardens and, and burn incense on altar of bricks, who sit among the graves and spend the night in the tombs, who eat swine's flesh and broth of abominable things in their vessel, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you. That's where we get to saying holier than thou. So this is one of the phrases where it comes from. These are all smoke in my nostrils and a fire that burns all day long. Behold, it is written before me. I will not keep silent, but will repay, even repay into their bosom. Your iniquities and the iniquities of your fathers together, says the Lord, who have burned incense on the mountains, and they have blasphemed me on the hills. Therefore, I will measure their former work into their bosom. Now, in these verses here, he's talking to the Jews, to the Jewish nation. God gave the gospel to him. It was given to the Jews first. And um, just to give you an example of this, let's turn to the book of Acts in the New Testament, chapter 13. And um, pick it up in verse oh, 46, <clears throat> and we'll go to 42. We find um, Paul uh, speaking on the Sabbath. Verse 46, then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. So he's talking to his Jewish brethren. But since you rejected it and judged yourself unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us. And then he quotes Isaiah 42. I have set you to be a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, when the Gentiles heard this, well, they were glad, and they glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as has been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. Now, as this is happening, remember, it talks about being provoked by jealousy. Here it's being manifested. But some of the Jews and the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, 
they raised up persecution against Paul and against Barnabas and expelled them from their region. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and they came to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. What we can glean from this, first of all, we find ourselves again being prophesied, verse 47, a light to the Gentiles, that's us. Um, the reason for their rejection, they rejected the Lord first. And um, the Gentiles are just blessed that they had this opportunity to have the gospel presented to them. But it stirred up the prominent men. But um, just like Jesus instructed his disciples, you know, there's people that, that you're uh, talking to and talking to and talking to that never, they don't, they don't want to get it, and they're going to refuse, and they're going to harden their heart. And I think there's only so much time you should invest. And the, doesn't the scripture say, don't cast your pearls before swine? Uh, sort of a derogatory term. In other words, don't waste your time. If, they, if you know that they're going to continually be hard-headed, shake the dust off your feet and find somebody who will listen. Amen? Don't cast your pearls. Pearls, something very, very precious. This book is extremely precious. And um, they blew, blew them off, and so they shook off the dust, and they just went to another city. And the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Back to Isaiah 65. Verses 8, 9, and 10. Now, this is going to deal... We just talked about um, them being rejected, but not all of them. And so as you look at 8, 9, and 10, you might want to um, write in your margin or whatever, like I have, I wrote in mine, I call it the remnant. The remnant. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster... And one says, do not destroy it, for a blessing is in it. So I will do for my servant's sake, that I may not destroy them all. I will bring forth descendants from Jacob, and from Judah an heir of my mountains. My elect shall inherit it, and my servants shall dwell there. Sharon shall be a fold of flocks in the valley of Kor, a place for herds to lie down, for my people who have sought me. So in these verses here, in spite of their sins, God would not totally exterminate them because of the believing remnant. Uh, The remnant is compared to a cluster of wonderful grapes that has been passed over in the vineyard. You see, there was to be a place, a place of safety for this little flock. Um, We need to turn to the book of Romans, chapter 11, because we just talked about um, Paul and Barnabas getting completely blown off by the Jews. And um, so that would be the majority. But when you get to the uh, book of Romans, chapter 11, verse 1, um, it says, Brethren, whoops, that's 10. I say then, has God cast away his people? He's talking about the Jewish people. He says, certainly not. For I am also an Israelite. Remember all of the early church, they were all Jews until Cornelius. He says, certainly not. For I'm an Israelite, seed of Abraham, tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says about Elijah? How he pleaded with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they've killed all your prophets. They've torn down your altars. And I'm the only guy left, and they seek my life. Here, Elijah, after um, taking out the 450 prophets of Baal, is having a pity party in this cave. And he says, "I'm, I'm the only one. Nobody else serves you. And the Lord spoke to him, and he says, I'm the only one left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? The Lord says, I've reserved myself 7,000 men, Elijah, that you don't know anything about. I have a remnant. You might think you're the only one. You're not. Even so, then, at the present time, there is a remnant 
according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. Now, this is very important scriptures here. It's got to be either or if you're a Christian. You're either going to totally rely on God's grace or you're going to think there's some good thing that you have to do somewhere that's going to merit God being extra good or loving to you. But in verse 6, it's clear. If it's by grace, there's no longer of works. They're mutually exclusive. They check each other out. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. And if by works, well, then it's no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were hardened. And um, we read about this hardening. If you go to verse 25, it's a scripture we often read and quote. Verse 25, I do not, brethren, I desire that you would, would not be ignorant of this mystery, lest you would be wise in your own opinions, that this hardening, which we read about in verse 7, the rest were hardness. Hardening, in part, has happened to, to Israel until the fullness of the Gentile comes in. And we've talked about the remnant. We talked about the Antichrist trying to destroy them in Revelation 12. A third of them are going to uh, be preserved. And then it goes on to say, just as it is written, uh, verse 8, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they would not hear, to this very day. And um, let's see how far do I want to go with that. I guess that's far enough. Um, but let's go back to these verses now. So in verses 8 through 10, what Isaiah, before he's wrapping up the book, is saying, I'm not through with them yet. And then in Romans again it says, and so Israel will be saved. This remnant will call upon the name of Yeshua, Jesus, and um, the Lord will return. This is what we've been going through on a regular basis for about the last month now. And eventually, he's going to plant his feet after he delivers them from Petra in Basra uh, at the Battle of Armageddon. He then goes back to Jerusalem, sets his foot on the Mount of Olives, and um, everything changes as we're getting ready to enter in now to the, um, the millennial period. All right, 11 and 12. Um, let's read those. But you are those who forsake the Lord, who forgot my holy mountain. So we're changed back now from the remnant that's going to be preserved back to who prepared a table for Gad and who um, furnish a drink offering for me and I. Therefore, I will number you for the sword, and you shall all bow down to the slaughter, because when I called you, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not hear, but did evil before my eyes and chose that which I did not delight. So 11 and 12, but the remainder of the nation that went headlong without heeding the word of God um, there really remains nothing for them but but judgment. Now, some of you have heard of uh, the dual covenant, that all Israel is going to be saved anyway. I think John Hagee teaches a dual covenant. Well, what is that? Well, he believes that just because you're Jewish and that God is, has a different covenant with Israel than he does with the church, and they're going to be saved automatically. I didn't read um, this, but I just flipped back to Romans 10. If that's the case, then Romans 10, verse 1, makes no sense at all. Because this is Paul again. He says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer for God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They think it's keeping the law and good works. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness not seeking to, to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So he's talking to Jewish people needing to be saved. So much for the dual covenant. Is everybody with me? 
There's not two covenants, one for the church and one for Israel. And um, Paul's heart was broken. He said, I would do anything uh, for my brethren if it meant them being saved. All right? 13 through 16 is uh, the Lord making a distinction between the nation as a whole and the remnant. Let's pick it up. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, my servant... Behold, my servant shall eat, but you will be, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servant shall drink, but you will be thirsty. Behold, my servant shall rejoice, but you shall be ashamed. Behold, my servant will sing for joy of heart, but you shall cry for sorrow of heart and wait for grief of spirit. You shall leave your name as a curse to my chosen, for the Lord God will Thunder from heaven, just to let you know that he is a creator of heaven and earth. Oh, that's not there. Just got a special effects, you know, for enhancing the study. You shall leave your name as a curse to my chosen, for the Lord will slay you and call his servants by another name, so that he who blesses himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth, and he who swears in the earth shall swear by the God of truth. Uh, because the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hidden from my eyes. So what we have here um, is sort of, in these verses, a distinction. Um, Just as God made a distinction between the nation of Israel as a whole and the remnant, so we have a remnant who's going to be saved, um, and a distinction of those who are being not. All right, let's switch gears and make it personal for you and I. And um, there are those who believe um, that they're Christians who are not born again. And let's turn to a couple places to make my point here. I want to make the point that there's a distinction also in the church, just as As we're reading through Isaiah 65, there's a distinction between the remnant who are going to be saved and those who are not. Let's talk about it just as as a church. In Revelation chapter 17, what we have is a vacuum. The church is living in the last of the last days. I believe the rapture is imminent. It could happen at any time. No man knows the day or the hour. But when it happens, there are going to be people that are just going to be stunned. And um, they simply did not know the Lord. And now we have a vacuum. Well, here's the distinction I want to make. When the rapture of the church takes place, every true born-again believer is going to be changed in a moment in a twinkling of an eye. and uh, But then there's going to be people that thought they were believers, and there's going to be a worldwide church. The Bible teaches a worldwide religion, a worldwide monetary system, and a worldwide gov- government. And I think we're on the fast track to all three of those things happening. And any any number of factors could have that shoe come dropping down And we're sort of living in the perfect storm. So who knows what's going to trigger it. Something's going to trigger it. And it very well could be the rapture. So um, there will be those who are left behind. And what we have in Revelation 17 is a picture of the church. And it's headquartered in Rome. And what's happening in the ecumenical movement today, across the board in Christianity, including the Calvary Chapel movement, is um, a dumbing down of doctrine for the sake of unity so that we can all be under one umbrella. After all, didn't Jesus say that my prayer for you is that you would be one and that I desire unity? Yeah, the Bible does say that, but not at the cost of uh, dumbing down doctrine. And when you see, you know, people coming together for the sake of unity and putting aside doctrine, this is all going to eventually lead to Rome. So let's pick it up in verse 4, 
where we read, this is John who, who is uh, taken and he sees this woman, verse 4, was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abomination of the earth. Now John is seeing this woman on the beast. And this is the title, Mystery Babylon. Again, Hyssop's book here is a classic. It's called The Tale of Two Babylons. And with it, the book is primarily about Roman Catholicism and ancient Babylon, the two Babylons together. And so it says in verse 6, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. That's another way of saying John is having his mind blown at this point. Why? Because he's looking at what is supposed to be the church. But what the church has done is committed spiritual fornication. Now, when you study Revelation in the church of Thyatira, which I believe represents the Roman Catholic Church, it says you have that woman Jezebel who commits, who caused your people to commit spiritual fornication. Well, what in the world is spiritual fornication? We know what physical fornication fortification is. What is spiritual fortification? And why use the word Jezebel? Jezebel was the one that introduced Baal worship into Israel. And as a result, a little leaven leavened out the whole country till you have to finally have the showdown on Mount Carmel with Elijah and 450 prophets of Baal. And um, John is just totally blown away by what he is seeing here because the church is responsible for the blood of the saints? Yeah. Read Fox's Book of Martyrs. That's what it's all about. And who did most of the killing? The Roman Catholic Church. And um, uh, it's a read by yourself. Go down to verse 16. It says, And then the ten horns which you saw on the beast will hate the harlot. Well, for the first three and a half years, um, the Antichrist is making these false peace treaties. He's made a commitment not only with Israel to build a temple, but he's also in bed with the Roman Catholic Church. And we see in verse 16, in the ten horns which you saw on the beast, they will hate the harlot. So now we have the Antichrist hating Rome or this religious structure. Why? Because he doesn't want anybody else worshipped except himself. That's why. And he said, make her desolate and naked and eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind and to give the kingdom to the beast until the word of God are fulfilled. Now, verse 18, very important verse. And the woman who you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. This was written by John in 96 A.D. The, the city that ruled over the entire world was the Roman Empire. So what verse 18 is telling us is that this religious institution is on the city of seven hills, and it's in Rome. That's where the Vatican is. That's where the Pope is making deals, even with um, Muslim clerics as of this week. And that this is breaking everyday stuff that's happening right now. So just more signs to be watching for. Um, let's go to Matthew chapter 25 real quick. And again, when I'm making a contrast here to, so you don't lose your train of thought, is Isaiah 65 is the Lord contrasting true believers who are Jews, a remnant, against those who are not. Now, in the church, it's the same way. And in, in Matthew 25, we have this parable that tells us exactly that. There are ten virgins, um, meaning that they're all supposedly Christians. It says five are wise and five are foolish. Let's go through it. Now, the kingdom of heaven. Whenever the Lord says that, he's talking about really everyday life that, that we are living current present tense. 
Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps out to meet the bridegroom. Five were wise, five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps, and they took no oil with them. Now, some people say that the oil is a symbol of uh, the Spirit. I happen to agree with that assessment. Um, If you don't, that's fine. I I certainly wouldn't be dogmatic about it. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. One of the dangerous things that the Lord said is look out for those who say the Lord is delaying his coming. And uh, we should be saying just the opposite. It looks like the Lord could come at any time. And um, the signs are just screaming (laughs) about as loudly as they can right now. Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Um, But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, a cry was heard. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. Well, one thing you can't do. Um, if your parents who are born again and your kids aren't, and they're above the age of accountability, they're not automatically saved because you're in the same family. Amen? You have to, it has to be a personal decision on your own. So they're going and say, give me what you got, instead of going right to the source to have the oil themselves. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil. But the wise answered and say, no, lest there should not be enough for us and you but rather go to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, well, the Lord came, and those who were ready, this is the important part, those who were ready, went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. I can't help but thinking of Noah and the ark, having one door, and when Noah and his family were in it, it says the Lord shut the door. And here we have the Lord shutting the door again. Now, I'm wondering when it started to rain real hard in Noah's days, if he didn't get some knocks on the door saying, let us in. And that's what happens here. Afterwards, the other virgins came also and said, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Uh, A person who has been born again, uh, Jesus said, my sheep, they hear my voice. They know me, and they follow me. And this is a remnant. There are those who call themselves Christians, even go to church, even put 20 bucks in the, in the plate when, when it's passed around. And uh, this happened to my father. My dad was ticked off when he got saved. He went to church for 25 years in a denominational church. And um, he did put his 20 bucks in. I remember it was 20 bucks every week. I watched the plate go by, 20 bucks in the, in the collection plate. And then he got saved and born again. And he went and had a little talk with um, the pastor of the church. He was mad. And he said, I've been going here for 25 years. And never once did you tell me I had to be born again. And that's after he, after he met the Lord. So dad took his frustration out on the pastor. <laughs> <laughs> came, came, he wanted his $20 worth, I guess. I don't know. But here, the Lord is saying, I don't, I don't know you. What's your point, Dwight? There's a remnant that'll be taken. There are people sitting in pews today that are not born again, and uh, they're going to be a part of this. So what's the admonition for you and I? Verse 13, watch therefore. Uh, for you don't know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. These are rapture verses to me. And those that are taken uh, will be taken to um, the wedding feast, of course. Uh, And the others will be left behind. And many of them will become a part of this religious structure that is headquartered in Rome. All right, let's go back to uh, chapter 65 and um, pick it up in verse... 17. Verse 17, we're just going to take on by itself. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, 
and the former shall not be remembered or even come to mind. Now, to me this was a slam dunk scripture that is Revelation 21, verse 1. After the millennial period or the thousand years, that's where this verse is quoted verse by verse. Um, He creates a new heaven and a new earth. Well, I read, I was reading Matthew Henry's commentary. I was reading McGee's commentary. And um, um, McGee makes the argument here that he says, now I'll quote him, here the, the creation of the new heavens and the new earth seems to precede chronologically the setting up of the kingdom. The rest of this chapter, after verse 17, is all going to be about the millennium. And we'll go into depth of this on Sunday. So what McGee is saying is it's out of chronological order because he's got the uh, um, the new heavens and the new earth, and then he goes and he regresses back to the millennium. Are you following me? Somebody nod their head if you are. Okay, <laughs> okay. Well, he's making the argument that that's not the case at all. He sees the new heaven. Uh, and a new earth here, and I'll read it. He says, but I think when we examine it closely, we'll find that the remnant has already judged uh, the kingdom. The others have been judged and do not enter the kingdom. This is what Matthew 25 is all about, when the Lord separates the sheep from the goats, and the sheep enter into the kingdom. They're blessed, and the others are condemned. He says, come, blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you, from the foundation of the world. To the others, they were to be cast into utter darkness and would not enter the kingdom. So his argument is it is in chronological order, and the first order of business is the curse being removed from this earth, and that's the way he's looking at it. And you know what? Uh, He might have a point. And I won't be dogmatic, but I want to give you both... um, points of view, and have you turn to Romans 8 as um, we, it talks about creation, groaning. It's under the curse right now. And if you go to Romans 8, picking it up, well, let's start right in verse 18. He says, for I consider, oh, this, this is comforting, uh, this verse right here, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time is not worthy to be compared with the glory which will be revealed in us. Gang, no matter what you're going through, no matter trials, how hard it is, um, whatever whatever you're dealing with, what's ever on your plate, um, it's temporal, and it's certainly not to be compared to what lies ahead for us. And we're the only ones that can say that. And then he says, for the earnest expectation of creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God, creation itself. For the creation was subject to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains together until now. And not only they, not only is the earth groaning, but we who are of the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan uh, ourselves eagerly awaiting for the adoption and redemption of our body. That's another way of saying I'm getting sick and tired of this whole world. How about a good amen there? I'm sick and tired of this world. It's getting worse by the day. And my spirit is earnestly groaning, saying, let's get it on, Lord. Please come. And so the, the point here, and this would be McGee's argument, that when the Lord comes again, he does remove the curse that's been upon, placed upon this earth. And Romans makes the argument the same way. It's waiting for the, our adoption, for us to take our place in the kingdom, for the Lord to come and create um, 
this new earth that um, will have the curse removed from it. And so that's one point of view. I think Romans 8 could possibly establish that. Taking it, if I'm just reading this for the first time without um, studying McGee or Matthew Henry's commentary, I probably never would have gone there. I would have taken this verse, uh, verse uh, 17, new heavens and a new earth. Well, it's clearly talking about after the millennium when you enter into eternity in heaven. All right. The rest of this chapter is going to be, um, we're going to take in depth on Sunday. I'll just read it for right now. He says, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. But the child will die 100 years old. They'll say, oh, too bad. He's such just a little kid. He's only 100 years old. And so we have longevity of life once again restored. But the sinner, meaning we're definitely not in heaven, uh, this is definitely in the millennium, being 100 years old will be accursed. They will build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. Some of the sequoias <clears throat> out uh, on, on the West Coast, um, some of them are 2,000 years old. They actually go back to the time of when the Lord walked the earth. They're huge. You've all seen pictures of them, right? Where you drive a car right through one of them. And um, the days of my people will be like uh, one of these old sequoias that have this uh, longevity of life. And my elect shall live long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth children for trouble. Some parents say amen here. (laughs) For they shall be descendants and the blessing of the Lord and their offspring with them. And it will come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they're speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like an ox. And the dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt nor destroy my holy mountain, says the Lord. The natural instincts of of a wolf is to eat the lamb. And here, there's tranquility. And um, no longer will the lion uh, be a meat eater, but um, they will eat um, just... um, the vegetation that's there. So in verses um, 18 through the end of this chapter, we'll be getting into more thoroughly on Sunday. Let's dive into uh, chapter 66, the last one. And um, verse 1, thus says the Lord, we'll read verse 1 and 2 here. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? For all these things my hand has made, and all those things that exist, says the Lord. But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and has a contrite spirit and trembles at my word. Here the Lord is establishing um, actually his place of worship and the place where that will be, let's turn quickly to the book of Revelation. Not spend too much time here. The focal point of worship forever and ever and ever is going to be part of what we call the New Jerusalem. And if you're in Revelation 21, it in verse 21, it, it, it gives you some of the, 
dimensions. It talks about, this is where we get the pearly gates. Verse 21 says, And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. Now, as far as a place to worship, like the temple in Jerusalem, or we come to a building where we gather, or two or three are gathered, the Lord says, I am there, and we worship the Lord collectively as, as a group of people. And it's one of the, the highlights, if not the highlight of, of our week. But not in eternity. In eternity, when you look at verse 22, there is no temple. He says, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, here's the Father, and the Lamb. Um, here's a picture of the Trinity. And the Lamb are its temple. And the city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it, and the lamp is the light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in it, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. These first couple of verses of Isaiah chapter 66 talks about worshiping the Lord. And who's going to build a temple for him? And um, it points us to this place that's going to be home. When Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, he's talking about the new Jerusalem. He says that where I am, I want you to be with me always. So we're going to be coming and going. And he hasn't told us a whole lot, except these last two chapters, 21 and 22, about eternity. We have a description of our home. It's going to be home forever and ever and ever. And who knows what tasks he has for us. I believe it's our home uh, during the millennial reign. And we'll have access to planet Earth where we're told we're going to rule and reign with him. But if we're taken in the rapture, where are we taken to? Well, I believe the New Jerusalem, a place prepared for you. And um, we better get back because I'm not going to finish my chapter otherwise. Uh, when we get to verse 3, um, it says, He who kills a bull as if he slays a man, he who sacrifices a lamb as if he breaks a dog's neck, and he who offers a grain offering as he offers swine's blood, he who burns incense as if he burns an idol, just as they have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. Verse 3, apparently... <clears throat> Uh, the sacrificial system will be dispensed. And after the millennium, to offer an ox without spiritual comprehension is the same as murder. Everything in eternity must point to Jesus, of that which was once commanded become sin. So there's going to be sacrifices, but not during eternity. That is gone. And if you do it, it, it's, it um, all these derogatory terms, if you sacrifice a lamb as if he breaks a dog's neck, no more, no more offerings because the Lord Jesus Christ will be the focal point of this. I'm going to read just a bit all the way to 17 here. So follow with me, please. So I will, <clears throat> excuse my voice, it's starting to slip away. Uh, so will I choose their delusion and bring their fears on them, because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not hear. But they did evil before my eyes and chose that which I did not delight. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your brethren who hated you and who cast you out for my name's sake said, Let the Lord be glorified, that we may see your joy but they shall be ashamed. The sound of the noise from the city, a voice from the trumpet, the voice of the Lord, who fully repays his enemies. Before she travailed, she gave birth. Before her pain came, she delivered a male child. Who has heard of such a thing? And who has seen such things? Um, so shall the earth be made to give birth in one day, or a nation born at once. In verse 7 here, <clears throat> uh, the great tribulation was a time of um, 
travail. Uh, Israel went through the great tribulation after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Before her pain came, she delivered a male child who is Christ Jesus. This is a remarkable verse, verse 7. And that's what it's re- referring to, the birth of the child before the pain of what Israel would eventually go through. Verse 9, so I will bring <clears throat> to the time of birth and Shall I bring to the time of birth and not cause delivery, says the Lord? Shall I who cause delivery shut up the womb, says your God? Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad with her, all you who love her. Rejoice for joy with her, all you who mourn for her, that you may feed and be satisfied with the consolation of of her bosom that you may drink deeply and be delighted with the abundance of her glory. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. And then you shall feed. On her sides you will be carried and be dangled on her knees. As one whom his mother comforts, so will I will comfort you. And you shall be comforted, in Jerusalem, this glorious day, what a time of blessing that this is all going to be. When you see this, your heart will rejoice, and all your bones shall flourish like grass, and the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servant, but also his indignation to his enemies. Now we regress to the Lord doing battle against those who would be against him. For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword, the Lord will judge all flesh and the slain of the Lord shall be many. And uh, we have in reference, I think in view here, again, the battle of Armageddon where the nations are gathered together against them. Those who sanctify themselves and purify themselves to go to the gardens after an idol in the midst, eating swine's flesh and the abomination, and the mouths shall be consumed together, says the Lord. For I know their works and their thoughts. It shall be that I will gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come, and they will see my glory. And I will set a sign among them, and those among them who escape I will send to the nations, to Tarshish and Pool and Lud, who draw the bowl, to Tubal and Javan, to the close lands afar off, who have not heard my fame nor seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the Gentiles. Picture of, of the kingdom age. And again, it says the kings of the earth and come and bring their glory into the millennial kingdom. And they shall bring all your brethren for an offering to the Lord of all nations on horses. They're going to come in chariots, on litters, on mules, on camels. To my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord, as the children of Israel bring an offering in a clean vessel into the house of the Lord. And I will also take some of them for priests and Levites, says the Lord. Now, the last um, couple verses as we wind up um, the book of Isaiah, it says, as he winds this up, for as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name remain. It will come to pass that from one new moon to another, and from one Sabbath to another. All flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. I got a couple minutes before I read the last verse. Turn over to uh, Zechariah 14 quickly as we wrap this up. Again, Zechariah is right before the last book of the Bible. A little bit more detail uh, with this, picking up in verse 17. Just a little bit more information. 
Verse 4 is where the Lord comes back and puts his foot on the Mount of Olives. And um, the mountain is moved by an earthquake half towards north and to the south. Um, Then in verse 16 it says, And it will come to pass that everyone who is left of the nations, and this is where Isaiah is ending up, but Zechariah gives us a little bit more clarity. It will come to pass that everyone who is left of the nations which came against Jerusalem shall come up, notice, from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So here we have a feast that's kept. And it shall be, this is millennium, of course, uh, that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship, the kings of the Lord of hosts, there won't be any rain on them. Let's say the families of Egypt will not come up. Uh, They will have no rain. They will receive the plagues which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, This punishment will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all nations that do not come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. In that day, holiness to the Lord will be engraved on the bells of the horses. The pots in the Lord's houses shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. Everyone who sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them. And that day there shall no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. Now, let's finish up the book of Isaiah. We started in chapter 1, 66 chapters later. We're ready for the final verse. Verses 22 and 23 talk about the nations and the descendants that they will be, go out and they will come to Jerusalem once a year. But then it's a heavy ending. Um, and they shall go forth and look upon the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. And their worm does not die, and their fire is not quenched. They shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. In other words... There is no peace, says God, to the wicked. Uh, This is, by the way, the third time this occurs. Um, This is going to be their condition throughout eternity. No peace, no rest, no contentment, no God. The book of Isaiah closes with this third warning that there's no peace for the wicked. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's an unbelievable thought of, of um, um, the rich man. And that's what I think of here uh, when Jesus told the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus is alive and well in Abraham's bosom. I believe he's in heaven. But the rich man is still there. He'll never die. He, he is um, eternally aware. Evidently, there's awareness. Um the last picture in, in this rich man's mind before the Lord empties Abraham's bosom is seeing Lazarus in comfort, at peace, and forever and ever and ever, this guy uh, says, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The rich man says, send over Lazarus and have him just dip his finger in some water that I might be cooled from this torment and his flames that I'm in. So the book of Isaiah ends with a warning. And like it says in Matthew 11, he who has ears, let him hear. All the more reason to be about our father's business, watching and waiting and occupying till he comes. Amen? We just cracked out the book of Isaiah. Stand. Close with the word of prayer. I pray for your people, Lord, as we finish this book. Have a deeper understanding that you are going to create a new heaven and a new earth. And as we read in Romans, Lord, creation is groaning. We're groaning for our new bodies, um, bodies that don't get tired. And we pray, Lord, that you would come. But until then, we want to heed your 
exhortation to us to make sure that we're watching. And as we even see the signs around us, it's shouting to us, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. So, Lord, we want to be ready. We want our friends to be ready. So give us boldness, like Paul and Barnabas, to share. Everybody, somebody's fool. And Paul said that he was a fool for you. So let us take the same attitude, Lord, and care less what people think about us, but give us a heart to care for them that we might share the truth of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.